0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: So that comparison mode that you talk about, though, I think is incredibly dangerous in the modern society because, you know, again, evolutionarily, we're living with 150 other people, give or take. So you're in competition with what, 75-ish people? Um, and today you're in competition with Bill Gates and, uh, Elon Musk and Mr. Beast and like every other person that you're finding on Instagram and social who have an exorbitant amount of money and status and shack for size and athletic ability. You know, like there is this very scary treadmill that I think a lot of people have gotten on and they cannot possibly live up to the expectations of
0: Rebecca, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. I found out about your book in another book that I was reading written by one of our former guests, and you wrote a book called Instinct. And I reached out to you because I thought, finally, somebody is actually backing this up with some real fucking research, not you know just (laughs) new age bullshit and nonsense, which I feel like so many books in this genre tend to be Based on anecdotal evidence, but yours mm. being, was based on real research. So, uh, I thought I'd start with what is one of my favorite questions, given that I see you as a social scientist. And that is what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on what you ended up doing with your life and your career?
1: Oh my gosh. I love that question. Um, I was, I was kind of a floater, honestly. Um, I kind of got along with everybody. So I was, I was not cool enough to be a mainstream jock, although I was a very, um accomplished athlete. I was a basketball player in high school. And um, but I was a nerd too, right? Like I was a four student. And so I kind of floated. I was super lucky in that um everybody was kind of kind to me. And I didn't really have a, a space where I fit. But in some senses that allowed me to to see multiple perspectives and and, you know, hang out with the theater nerds and hang out with the uh the the folks that were into the new age kind of drug scene and and hang like I just floated and it was um it was a privilege for me to float in those different worlds and to see the, the dynamics of different tribes. I think yeah. it, it definitely influenced me later on to recognize just how powerful it is when we choose a tribe to identify with, um, you know, how much that defines us and the expectations that other people have of us. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Never been asked that yeah. before.
0: Well, okay. So I'm not going to let the basketball thing go. Cause I'm always fascinated by people who are athletes cause <laughs> I was not one of them. Uh, even though I was in marching band, which you get athletic credit for and running around with a 50 pound tuba is athletic. But beyond That's that, for I real. don't really, yeah, I beyond that, like when clarinet players don't hold their instruments up, I'm like, you idiots, stop being lazy. Uh, but you know, I, something that always fascinates me about athletes is how much being an athlete ends up influencing them later in their lives. Uh, mm, and I can't yeah. tell you the number of guests I've had here who, credit being on a high school sports team to a lot of what they've ended up doing. So I wonder what lessons both in terms of habits and discipline, but also in your own work around instinct did you get from playing basketball?
1: Gosh. Well, let me start with the, the fact that I think I think basketball in general, and, and there's a crazy statistic out there and I don't want to misquote. So somebody, somebody's going to look this up and and hopefully you'll, you'll get it right. I'll look it up and put it in the show notes or something. But it's like 93% of women CEOs played a high school sport. Like it's an absurd, absurdly high number. And so I think, you know, that's, that's so telling in the drive, in the way, um, the way teams shape us. Um. I think for me, there was a lot of discipline to it. And part of it was I was following in my sister's footsteps. My sister was an incredible athlete. Um, I really wanted to be her. And so I I kind of followed in her footsteps there. Um, but but being coached, you know, being able to take uh feedback well, like watching game footage. I think about now, you know, the editing process of writing a book or, or you know, being on stage and speaking to groups and then going back and watching the film. Like, I feel like I'm still watching basketball films going, Oh gosh, I see where I screwed up there or I see where I missed that opportunity here. Um, and so having the discipline to, I think, watch yourself on film, um, is huge and get that feedback. And then of course, there's the, the sort of more common answer about teamwork and cooperation and recognizing that like, yes, you, you are, you are one individual among you know, ten or eleven others, and everybody has their role, right? I I was I was five foot two my freshman year, so I was a point guard. I was this tiny little kid, and um, by my sophomore year I was five nine, <laughs> and wow. I didn't stop there. So like, I had this massive growth spur. I completely lost all of my handling skills, right? But I now <laughs> I not imagine. This new I was thinking about Breaking. that. I was like, so I was like, donkey. how do you, if
0: you go from five two to five nine as a point guard, like, what does that do to your your like <laughs> oh, ball handling man. abilities? <laughs>
1: I was so gawky. I was so gawky, but like, but I realized, oh, this is a new role I get to play. And now I'm throwing elbows. Oh, that's cool. That's an interesting. So again, (laughs) in, in, right, in some ways, um, very much interesting right now that I think about it. Um, I was floating through the positions in basketball the same way I was floating through tribes in life and realizing, oh, this is the role I have to play here. Um, what? What is just coming to mind as I say that is so often I feel like we, we wear masks in life of like, how do I fit in here? What do I need to become? How do I need to play this role? And a part of sports for me was figuring that out. Um, I'm not saying that's always a good thing to do, right? Not, not showing up as your fully authentic self, but being able to be, become that chameleon and say, what is needed of me here? Um, is a, is a powerful lesson that I certainly carried with me. Yeah.
0: Well, two questions come from that. You mentioned, uh, wanting to be your sister. So I wonder how you follow mm-hmm. in the footsteps of somebody you look up to without feeling like you're living in their shadow.
1: Yeah, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> look, I, I would love to have like pearls of wisdom there. And I was so lucky in that, um, you know, my sister was an incredible, she was Victorian. you know, the whole, she oh, had, trust a, me, I she get it. R- I recruited, yeah, like recruited that. D1, recruited D1 to play basketball, like the whole thing. Um, yeah and i don't know how actually maybe it's because she was such a remarkable giving person but she allowed me the space to, to be who i was um despite the fact that i just definitely wanted to be her and so um i i really credit her for that i don't think it had anything to do with with me trying to set myself apart from her um mm. although that is there is a lot of science behind that in siblings um that the second born is really often the one that is like trying not to follow the rules of their parents and, um, you know, not being the the sort of authoritarian, I'm going to follow all the rules. I'm going to break all of them. I'm going to be the rebel just because that creates space for me to have an identity outside of, you know, other roles. Um, So I'm getting off topic here, but yeah, I, I yeah. think I was lucky and I don't have the answer to that because I was just like, I felt more myself when I was closer to my sister. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, it's funny because my sister is younger, but it's kind of the opposite with us. Like, I'm the one who broke all the rules and basically didn't follow any of the things that a good Indian kid is supposed to do. And she became a doctor. Oh, there you go. Yeah, there you go. She's she's every Indian parent's dream come true.
1: And I'm sure that has something to do with gender as well, right? She was probably, is she the first born uh, girl in the family? Yeah. Right. So, yeah, interesting.
0: Did you and your sister ever play in the same team?
1: Uh, we did once for one year just in summer camp. So, uh, it was a blast. Like we played, we played a lot of three on three together and, and tournaments and things like that. Um, but never, never on the varsity team together, which was a shame. It would have been a blast.
0: So a couple of things around basketball. Well, one was the, the piece on, you know, looking at game tape. And I, you know, it's funny. I'm a weirdo who doesn't I watch sports, but I play sports video games religiously. So I know about the okay. NBA because of that. And yeah. like, I'm always stunned by the number of professional coaches who actually got their start by watching game film, like, uh, Eric Scholster <laughs> on Miami Heat. Like yeah. I, these are my, yeah. these are my NBA 2K facts, know, <laughs> from playing video <laughs> games. Uh, but I think that the thing that I point striking and I, I was having a conversation with my friend Sam about this and we, I coined this term, the paradox of receptive resistance, which is mm. we're so like in need of feedback when we're young. And yet that is when we're least open to it because our egos are too big. um. So talk to me about so why we are so, if you look at it from just sort of a, a standpoint of instinct and in your research, why yeah. are we so resistant to feedback that actually can improve performance? Because like you said, watching game film sure. is a bit like me going back and listening to my podcast and thinking to myself, Fuck, that sounded stupid. Oh uh, my God,
1: I'm an idiot. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. You know, I like, I go back and I listen to a year or two ago and I'm like, oh, I'm like, this is cringeworthy. And I realized mm. that it should be because yes. I think it was, yes. uh, if I remember correctly, it was, um, what's his name? Reed Hoffman who said, if you're not embarrassed by the first version That's of the product, me. you shipped it too late
1: man, you just stole my line. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly <laughs> about. What is it about
0: humans that makes us yeah. so resistant to that idea? Because you would not believe the amount of people who tell me fear yeah. of public opinion is what keeps them from doing what they want to do. And I'm like, guess what? If you are in the public eye in any way at all, you better get used to the fact that there are going to be people who hate you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, actually, I'm going to push back a little bit on what you said, because I don't think we're super resistant to that feedback when we're really young. Like yeah. super young and then we hit like the 12-year-old, 11, 12 in pre-adolescence and we become super aware that it's not just us. like We are part of a system, a part of a tribe, a part of like, oh gosh, I have to meet the expectations of other people. And that's when it starts to be so freaking impossible um, to, to hear that feedback because it's super, super shaming and scary for us because evolutionarily, right? If you are in the public eye, if you are putting yourself out and like sticking your head up from the rest of your tribe, who is just kind of a fitting name, what you're basically signaling is, Hey, there's an opportunity here for you to love or hate me. And, um, and the stakes to me very, very high because if you, you know, are hated or are disowned by the tribe, you die. Like, like evolutionarily was not, we weren't very kind, um, to, to others. I, if you are not providing resources that are valuable to the tribe, why would we keep you alone? If you are not um, able to defend yourself or defend others, why, you become a burden. Um, and humans are so incredibly social and sensitive to this feedback as a result. Because if you tell me like, I'm not enough, oh my gosh, that that is one step away from a death sentence. You know, um, obviously not, that's not the case in, in the modern environment. But that's still how our brains are programmed is to think about this as, as a, a life and death situation. And so we have massive stress response. And in some cases that, that shame, that shame response can be very motivating, right? Like when I watch game footage of myself now and I, I hear myself and I'm like, Oh my gosh, if you say right one more time as a filler word, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to strangle you. Right. You know. Uh, and it's 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 incredibly motivating, Um, but it's also, you know, potentially very painful and, and difficult on, on bigger issues. So, yeah, it's a it's an interesting, I guess, holdover effect uh, from from our evolutionary past.
0: Yeah. Well, so the one other final question I have, and I promise we'll get into the book right after this. Um
1: uh, Oh, you're OK. I like these. These are fun.
0: You mentioned going from five, two to five, nine in the span of a year. <laughs> Yes. And so I'd imagine if you were a point guard, you were pretty damn good. And at some point, like as a part of that growth spurt, your performance probably suffered a little bit during the adaptation process. Talk to me about that yeah. and how you actually yeah. managed to get through that.
1: You know, I, I, I played a lot, um, by myself. I, I, again, this is, this is the advantage of having an older sister, um, who was also gawkily tall and skinny for her age. Um, I, I didn't want to perform poorly in front of people that again, just like we were talking about before, it was a, it was a deep seated fear. And as a result of this sort of perfectionist drive, um, I would hold back a little bit, um, until I was certain I could do it well. So I, I held myself back a little bit that first year in not playing up to my full potential, like really throwing elbows of really, you know, dr- drop stepping in the paint. Um, until I had those moves perfected. And so I was that kid, you know, you hear these things about LeBron and Kobe showing up an hour before practice. That was me. You know, yeah. I was showing up every weekend, um, practicing, 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 so that when I got to the game, you know, I could fill, I could fulfill that role. Um, and I, the other thing I'll say is I I ended up not being a shooter. Like I was not the um, the person who was going to score the number of points that, that you know, I was not going to be the high scorer. I sound my role in defense. I was like, listen, I am gawky as hell, but I will throw my body anywhere, <laughs> any place, anytime to get the ball. And so I ended up being the, the one who was going to outwork. If I couldn't have the talent, I was going to outwork you.
0: Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect.
2: absolutely incredible
1: or anime and under this mask is another mask
0: (laughs) you can discover your new favorites right here on the
2: anime effect listen every friday wherever you get your podcast and watch full video episodes on crunchyroll or on the crunchyroll youtube channel
3: introducing wonder suite from bluehost.com website creation is hard
4: Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
2: Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness.
0: We go sell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yep. So one thing I wonder about that, how much of that is nature? How much of it is nurture? Because mm-hmm. like, people <laughs> have asked me, I had a, a friend, roommate, who was like, did you get straight A's in high school? I was like, yeah, of course I did. I'm Indian. Like, that's a yeah. stupid question.
1: <laughs> right? I, yeah, it, just, there's, an, there's an option.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that was like a non-option. Yeah. Like, that was not even a discussion in our household. Uh right. But it, it like I realize now that that was a huge advantage to be raised like that because like we were yeah. basically, you know, sort of indirectly taught about the value of intrinsic motivation. And so I sure. wonder for somebody like you to show up, you know, as you mentioned, sort of like Kobe and LeBron, like before practice, before everybody else, mm-hmm. how much of that is the result of your upbringing and how much of that is just how you're wired?
1: Uh, you know it's a great question and it's one of those that like if biologists could actually figure this out we might be getting somewhere um <laughs> i think it's for for a long time actually the, the answer was oh it's genetics it's genetics it's like 100 percent genetics and behaviorism went way out of fashion and now we're kind of swinging back around to this idea that actually we're, we're a lot more toddler rasa than than we thought originally you know genetics certainly do play a role but yeah. in things like iq um what we're finding, especially with you know, work done by Carol Dweck and, and others in the mindset area. Um, IQ is not fixed at all. It's, it's actually highly influenced by, um, by your mindset, by your culture, by your surrounding, um, willpower. Same thing. You know, it's, it is wild how much, uh, behavior and, and culture plays a role. Um, I, I am definitely of the opinion that it's your surroundings one anything else that determines your, your, um, aptitude.
0: Yeah. Well, so the thing, it's, it's funny that you mentioned we're kind of swinging the other way when it comes to genetics, because like one thing that I have found pretty consistently is that there's almost this sort of, uh, hatred towards the idea of genetic determinism in all self-help it's literature. True. And I'm like, that is absolute yes. bullshit. Genetics matter. Yeah. Like, it, you is.
2: Know, it does.
0: Like, <laughs> like chances are you could kick my ass in a game of one-on-one. You know, like I'm yeah, a scrum Indian. Yeah. You're, you're tall. You've played basketball. Like it's, you know, as right. I've said, like me and LeBron are never going to play a game of pickup. Like it's just never right. going to happen. Right. right. No matter how hard I work. Um, but let's get into to the book. Talk to me about what led you drown, down this trajectory to do this work in particular and, and the path that has led you there. Because as it sure. is with the case with all of my guests, like this doesn't sound like the, the career that you get when you go to the high, high school guidance counselor asks you what you want to do with your life.
1: <laughs> There's a funny story there. Um, I think they, they determined that I should be a plumber or a septic tank install person. Um, because I like working with my hands. Yeah. 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 I think that was my like aptitude. Test. It was like, Hey, you should be a septic tank installer. I was like, okay, that's helpful. Thanks. Anyway, uh, I, I was lucky enough to go to undergrad and my advisor, um, is, was one of the, in, I don't know, predominant, um, people in the, in the world of evolutionary psychology. Uh, so David Sloan Wilpin, um, ended up, you know, as, as my master's advisor. Um, wait, let me back up. So I ended up taking a evolution of human behavior class, uh, from David Sloan Wilson. His wife was my master's advisor. Um, so I ended up like spending time at their house over dinners, you know, <laughs> talking through evolutionary psychology and human behavior. And I feel like the two of them just gave me this pair of glasses that nobody else seemed to have in the world, right? It's, it was this lens through which I could see. Everything so clearly, in in the way that humans behaved, and and all of these interactions that that I saw one way before, I saw completely differently now. Because you know, I couldn't go to a bar and watch a dude try and pick up some some woman without going, "Oh my gosh, dude, quit in your Rolex." You know, like we all get it. You're rich. You're trying to signal to her that you're a good provider. I mean, it just it was like this weird lip that um, I couldn't turn off in my brain, and so every every time I watched humans doing anything, it became like a, a study to me. I was like, oh, what would drive that? Um, you know, why why would they be doing that rather than this? Um, so I, I started looking at at the world as one big puzzle and I, I felt like I had these special glasses to see more clearly. Um so that's that's kind of the start of it. The the short version of a much longer story is that after after grad school, um I was teaching, I was in an academic position as you know a lot of us end up in. And um, I took a, a look at my life. Um, my my sister-in-law, unfortunately, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And it's one of those moments that, you know, pulls the rug out a little bit. You, you take assessment of your life. And I was like, man, everything that I have done up to this point, I've made decisions out of fear, right? Like, I am not going to pursue basketball um, because it'll take away from my studies. And what if I don't get a four O in college and how... You know, like I didn't, I made every single decision in my career on the safe route. And, um, so I quit my job, sold my house and divorced my husband that month, (laughs) which like, you know, I mean, it was a, it was a pretty massive shift. Um, but I, I decided I was going to take this special pair of glasses that I had and say, all right, what would a, what would a life look like if I wasn't constrained by all of these patterns of belief, these patterns of fear? that have kept me alive, right? All the biological patterns that keep me alive. Um, And that became the outline for the book.
0: Well, on that note, I want to bring back a clip from a previous episode uh, from a conversation I had with David Epstein, which I think will make a nice jump off point from what you just (laughs) said. Take a listen. Going forward to higher ed, which you mentioned, I think there are two main issues here, main problems. First is what I write about in Range called the end of history illusion. This psychological finding that at every time point in life we will all recognize that we have changed a lot in the past based on our experiences and then say but now i'm pretty much done and every time point in life we will we'll say that and we will be wrong we will underestimate future change at every
1: time point even
0: when we're very old but at no time is that more true than from about 18 to the late 20s that's when you undergo the mm-hmm. fastest time of personality change
2: and so mm. essentially
0: right at the start of that period we're telling someone pick now which which is really asking them to pick for a person they don't yet know. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly in a world they can't yet conceive unless they have a crystal ball that most people don't. So you seem to have figured out early on <laughs> what you wanted to do and found something that you love. And I, I realized I was yeah. not so fortunate and at the same time I realized that I tried to force fit what I thought I should do with my life pretty early on, only to realize that, like, I was so far off from it that when people would ask me what I was going to do when I got out of business school, I would tell them, I don't know, as long as it has nothing to do with the Internet, which clearly the universe has a sense of humor.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I find that clip fascinating and I. I think there's a challenge to it as well. Um you know, he mentions it's the 18 to 20 year old, uh, time when we're like, Oh, what do you want to do with your life? And, and we're like, we have no idea. And gosh, that's a, such a small slice of, of, perspective. And I should mention that this, this divorce my husband and changing career paths, that was in my thirties. Like this was not, this was not early on. I was, I was following that fear path for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I wish there was some way to shortcut this feeling of, and you'll forgive my language here, but I'm like, I'm in the fuck it forties. You know, like, ah, oh, fuck it. Like, this has to be important to me. This has to be valuable to me. If there, if this person is going to judge me by the way I look or, or the partner that I'm with or the show that I like or, um, then it's not worth my time. And I wish that I could give that gift to 18 year olds. I wish I could give that perspective to 16 year olds. And I, I'm not certain that that is not, um, just something that we have to earn over time. Because the older I get and the more wisdom I see in my elders, of they're even more advanced. Of yeah, no, like this is this is all that matters, <laughs> uh, and I, I find that just really a challenge. Maybe to to issue that to to others. Yeah. Well,
0: you mentioned that you worked as an educator briefly. Like I've always wondered when I talk to people like you, why we do not teach some of these essential skills in school, because mm-hmm. I, I think they're hard to quantify. It's hard to pin down and say, okay, yeah, your instincts have improved. Like, how do you even measure that? Right? Right, right. Um, because I think we're obsessed with being able to measure things. Uh, so one, I wonder, you know, what do you think we should be teaching in school about this? And you, know, you open the book by saying, thanks to millions of years of evolution, our brains are amazing, recognizing danger and instantaneously repon- responding in ways that keep us safe before even conscious of what is happening. Fear is at the root of our survival. And yet. Yeah. You know, we're basically, in my mind, operating in a modern world with our ancient brains to make that's some of our most important decisions.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. I actually, when I when I was an educator, the first thing I did was I went to the dean and I was like, I'm going to teach an evolution for everyone course, um, an evolution for human and human behavior for everyone course, because, again, I, I just want to provide those glasses for as many people as I can to say, look at the world, look at your life. Look at what you're doing. Look at the decisions and the judgments and the fears that you have. They're not rational. You know, more, more people fear snakes than they do death. More people fear public speaking than they do death, which is hilarious, <laughs> right? Like, like yeah. wait, wait a second. That doesn't, uh, okay. And in, in the context of an evolutionary psychology, of course, you're like, oh, you're afraid you're going to screw up in front of your peers and they're going to reject you. And that rejection means you are actually going to die. And then it becomes logical. But, but not for the modern world, right? Like, okay, so you get up and you, you have a terrible set in a stand-up comic routine. What happens? Um, nothing, right? Like nothing bad happens. Your friends yeah. are going to be supportive and they're going to see you and they're like, wow, you went all into that. I'm so proud of you. You know, congratulations. In fact, they might respect you more for it. But in our heads, it's like the worst thing that could possibly happen. So, you know, teaching, I think, Teaches some of these basics of of the stress response and how we can begin to uh, to recalibrate it. You know, seeking seeking discomfort. I, I I challenge everybody that I speak to to you know go stand on the street corner and sing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star as loud as you can. You know, and everybody's <laughs> like, No way! What are you talking about? I'm like, Fine. Then then at the crosswalk, grab somebody's hand and do-si-do across the street. I'm like, No, no. that's insane. I'm like, Nothing bad's gonna happen. You know, that's it's just your brain say, Oh my gosh, and put and you'll feel your stress response come on. You'll feel your your heartbeat start to pound, you start to sweat. And I'll ask people to the end, okay, did, did you die? No. Great. What you did then is you began to layer down this this footage for your brain to refer back to and go, Oh, right. I know what this discomfort is. And it's not a life and death situation, right? This isn't a tiger. This is the modern day. Nothing bad going to happen. I'm okay. I don't have to stress out about this. And that mm-hmm. kind of stress inoculation, I think, is maybe one of the most important things that we can teach anybody, um, to, to have a more fulfilling, um, purposeful life that they're, they're actually choosing rather than having it chosen for them out of, out of fear.
0: Absolutely. Well, I think for the purpose of this conversation, let's define what instinct is. Because I think, as I yeah. said, to me, that was one of the things that struck me most was that you backed this up with so much research. And I feel like instinct yeah. typically is one of those things that the definition of it is really sort of nebulous. We kind of talk about it and we don't <laughs> we don't really have terminology to actually break it down and say what the <laughs> hell is instinct?
1: Right. Right. Or it's like, trust I mean, your
0: instincts is this like beautiful, you know, this really nice sounding. It? It's like, well, what if your instincts are wrong? Like, what if your yeah. instincts are totally off?
1: Like, 100%. My instincts, and this is, I don't mean that to offend you, but my instinct, if I saw you in person, my instincts would be, don't trust that human being. Why? You're a different thing color than me, which means you're from a different tribe than me. Now, that is a terrible instinct to have in a global economy in a, in a space where like, we are no longer tribal beings. But uh, the instinct is this automatic reaction that happens at the level of the subconscious that we're not consciously processing that is built literally to keep us alive. And so it results in all sets of, of adaptive behaviors, like don't trust that person, run away, um, fight them, flee from them, freeze. I, but again, are not adaptive for the modern society. Like if we're unaware of our instincts, Or we're constantly, you know, giving into the platitude of, oh, yeah, trust your instinct. Well, my gut is going to be wrong a lot of the time because my gut is built for survival and sex. I mean, let's be honest, sex and survival is literally the only thing your brain does all day, every day. If you want to challenge me on that, bring it on. It is all about sex and survival. Like literally the first thing you see about a person is like, "Ooh, can I have sex with them? Nope, they're a threat. That's it. Like that's all you're doing all day, every day. Um, yeah, well, can I, I, can I, I, I
0: agree with you. People always ask, like, yeah. how do you make a decision on a uh, dating app? I'm like, let's be really honest. Most guys, if they were being completely transparent, would basically say, I look at that person and say, would I want to have sex with them? If the answer is no that's sweat it.
2: left.
1: Like, that's
0: it? I think anybody who says that's You're not like, true is full of shit.
1: I, I agree because that is the basic instinct of, of, and, and for women, I'll say the exact, the exact thing holds true. And it's, it's less about looks at, at the level of, of, Of gender for women, it's more about status. So if you have a job that is earning less than 50k, for example, or like, you're not wearing that Rolex or that whatever signal it is to to show that you're a high upstanding citizen that that makes a lot of money, because that's what we value men for in the society, unfortunately, is their paycheck. Um, Men respect other men because of their paycheck and women respect men because of their paycheck. And that is I think undermining a lot of our society right now, um, especially as women have moved into positions of power and leadership.
2: I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Leah Alec Murray.
1: And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect.
4: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or sleepnumber.com.
2: Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness.
0: Yeah, I want to come back to that. There's a lot there. Yeah,
1: Uh, Yeah, there is. Sorry.
0: (laughs) We'll we'll come back to that because I I think it makes sense for a later section of the book. But uh, one thing that you talk about is the role of uh, instinct in decisions. And you say that our ability to make good decisions degrades under stress largely as a result of two mechanisms, a narrowing or premature closing closure of the decision-making process that leads to all options, either not being evaluated or being, not being evaluated carefully enough before a decision is made, an unsystematic scan in which review of options available goes from being logical or frantic or disorganized, often feeding back into a biased resolution, which I, I think our dating app example actually works perfectly. For it actually works really well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. So talk to
0: me about that. Like when we're doing something like making decisions on dating, app, like app, what is going on from a sort of brain science standpoint as somebody is you know, swiping based on what you have just said, uh, in the passage I've read.
1: Oh my gosh. Well, the swiping technique is, a, is there's, there's a lot more happening there, but, um, at, at a very basic level, what's happening is under stress, under pressure, um, our cortisol is going up. Testosterone is typically going, well, for men, it, it can be going up alongside cortisol, um, for a dating app, for example, which means you're now making more risky decisions uh, or you're willing to make more risky decisions. Uh, and the, the power to override those at a conscious level, at a cognitive level, um, using your frontal lobe, that sort of gift of human evolution declines. So you're reliant more on the story shortcuts and instincts that kept us alive or, or, or I, I, the very basics can say, Oh, you know what that person looks like? They look very symmetrical. This is, this is all, all the brain stuff that's going on in behind the scenes is you're looking at an image. The person looks symmetrical, which is a, a way of determining oh they must be youthful and they must uh therefore have high reproductive value. <laughs> Meanwhile you're like she's pretty, me mate. Yes. Um and and we're not considering well what is she like in person? That narrowing of the field um is what are the other options? How do I how do I explore whether this person will be a good long-term mate or a short-term mate? Um so we're making these rapid rapid fire decisions without Thinking about the consequences, thinking about long term. And again, remembering that for our ancestors, long term, like 25 years is a long lifespan. <laughs> so, you know, if you're past that point, this is, this is kind of free time for us. Um, those, those decisions were made rapidly without, without a whole lot of consideration. Um, other than it, what, what am I willing to risk?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you say, how do we get our brains to allow us to make the, the Allows the time to make the best decisions to rewire mm. your survival instincts. You're going to have to bend time. So sticking with yes. this dating app example, yeah. because let's face it, <laughs> like you said, you know, you'll be thinking, okay, if I can have sex with this person tonight, who gives a damn about the long term? I'm not very right. Cons- like that's the least of my concerns at the moment. So,
2: mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. how do you, yep. how do
0: you think about that? Like when you talk about this idea of bending time? Cause I think like so, <clears throat> if you were to talk to most guys, you'd be like, yeah, I'm not long term is really not even a consideration in this moment.
1: Right, and and actually, this is a challenge for the dating map, um, to talk about bending time because bending time is actually about finding novelty, which again compounds the problem with the dating map because, uh, what are we what are we swiping through like a hundred women at night? I'm part of the issue is then the uh, this will bleed into another chapter of the book of like more variety. Our our brains are built to say, oh yes, more variety, please. I want more more options, um, mm-hmm. which ultimately doesn't help our decision making at all. In fact, we. Believe it or not, we actually want fewer options. It's just not what our brain believes. Um, we're happier with fewer options. So, so what's happening as you're as you're flipping through here is rather than bending time, rather than bending time in a way that is potentially useful to give yourself more time to make the decisions. So, um, I I will tell people to to go do something novel, like drive home from work a different way. Uh, in the case of the dating app, instead of just Flipping, flipping, swiping, there's, there's the word I'm looking for, swiping right or swiping left, take some time to look at parts of the profile that you wouldn't normally look at. Um, because what you're forcing your brain to do is see something that it didn't see before. And so you're slowing down, you're actually creating more space for your frontal lobe to catch up and come online and go, oh, you know what? Maybe she's not as attractive. Now that I've read her profile and I start to see things that that don't fit um, my ideal mate. So that's, uh, that's part of the bending time or greeting time, uh, for your brain. I, it's really making haste slowly.
0: <laughs> well, so I said that I wanted to come back to this idea of status because. Uh, you talk mm-hmm. about what you call the sex instinct you say the sex instinct that equates height with status is likely the driving force that often puts tall men in positions of power <laughs> and it, it yeah. reminded me mm-hmm. of this moment I, I don't remember who it was it might have been annie duke or somebody else we had yeah. as a guest on the show Is like well if you go out go out with your ugliest friends because then you'll be perceived 100%. as attractive 100 like, percent wow okay 100%. great thanks it's like get my friends it's like you're shorter than me come on let's go out
1: Isn't- yeah, there's a reason. Listen, there's a reason that presidential candidates uh once television became a thing started wearing lifts in their heels. Like lifts in their shoes. They want to be taller than their opponent because it shows dominance. And women are like, "Oh my gosh, that person." We got and men too. They were they're more likely to respect the person that is looking down on them as a dominant figure, which is so absurd, but these are the kinds of biases that um that create terrible decisions. Of course, I of course I respect that CEO, why? And the, the brain will come up with all kinds of reasons why I respect that CEO. When in reality, the only decision and the only reason I actually respect that person is because they're taller than me. But that's not what I'm going to mm-hmm. say, right? Because we're really good at self Um Or because, you know, she's beautiful, right? It's, she has a great personality. <laughs> so that comparison mode that you talk about, though, I think is incredibly dangerous in the modern society because, you know, again, evolutionarily, we're living with 150 other people, give or take. So you're in competition with what, 75-ish people? Um, and today you're in competition with Bill Gates and uh, Elon Musk and Mr. Beast and like every other person that you're finding on Instagram and social who have an exorbitant amount of money and status and shack per size and athletic ability, you know, like, there is this, there is this very scary um treadmill that I think a lot of people have gotten on and they cannot possibly live up to the expectations of, of you know, these, these massive figures. And so they get into deep, deep depressions. Well, I mean, Will
0: Storr wrote this book, uh, Selfie, How We Become So Self-Obsessed and what it's done mm-hmm. to us. And I remember him saying, he said that, you know, we have this very toxic narrative that like, if you're not Beyonce or Tim Ferriss or whoever it is, then right. something is wrong with you. And he said that, one, you're not likely to become those people. But even worse than that, it's like not even true. Uh, okay. And yet, to your point, like we live in a very status driven society because like I remember I was telling somebody once, I was like, don't ever judge a person, especially on the internet by their perceived status, because... You are going to miss out on some of the greatest opportunities. Like my mentor, Greg, mm-hmm. by, by far the most influential person. He's the one who came up with the name unmistakable. Creator. Like I wouldn't be where I'm with that. Huh. When I met him on Twitter, he had 150 followers. He was six weeks into a project. Yeah. Nobody knew who the yeah. hell he was. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And had I been willing to discount him based on the perceived mm-hmm. social status, I would have missed out on probably the most important relationship in my professional career.
1: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And that's, that's, that's a classic case of good decision making. Um, that maybe your instincts you had to go against a little bit there.
0: Well, so this makes me wonder about instincts across culture, because you say, without a doubt, our mm-hmm. biological poles are not experienced in a vacuum. Socialization and cultural gender norms are informed by and reinforced by our biological oh, yeah. nature. And, For just, sure. you know, like as an Indian American, it always, always makes me wonder, like when somebody like you does the work you do, what have you seen as the differences when it comes to instincts across different cultures?
1: Yeah. So this is the, this is the fun part of working on biology and, and, um, I guess from an evolutionary perspective, across culture, biologically, they should be the same. Instincts should be the same because this is a, this should be a cross cultural phenomenon. However, um, as we know, we're not in a vacuum. So the culture itself can, uh, can greatly influence how those instincts show up, how importantly, how much value they're given. Um, as they show up, I, and so we do see this sort of shifting between, um, between cultures, but at the base, at the baseline, those instincts will be the same. So your, your instinct to need to achieve, your instinct to, to have variety, your instinct to fear the other, they're, they are cross cultural.
0: Well, let's start and sort of how somebody actually improves their instinct and and refines it. Like, do you, is this just (laughs) something that's the result of making a lot of shitty decisions? And then you realize like, okay, (laughs) great. The other thing is that, you know, I I think you can also have sort of a combination of biases that form your instinct. And I'll give Mm -hmm. you the stupidest one of all, which, you know, I have shared this before, which is like, I've had three women with small dogs in my life and they were all awful in one way or another. (laughs) And one was actually perfectly nice. But like from that point forward, I was like, yeah, all women with small dogs are awful. Um, which yeah, sure. I know for a fact makes absolutely no logical sense, right? My sample size is basically three people. And I remember I even <laughs> tried to validate this with Allison Schrager because she's an economist. And when I told my friend Brian <laughs> yeah. that, he said, you're a fucking idiot. He said, you don't even like dogs. <laughs> and he was like, so that's a bullshit theory of yours. And I'm like, yeah, I'm well aware. But I mean, yep. like, you see the absurdity of that, right? Like I, my instinct is one of the small dogs swipe left.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm, you know I'm that's aware bad. of that
0: absurdity and I still do that.
1: <laughs> and that's the biggest problem is if you think about the amount of information that our brain is processing, right? We've got 400 billion bits of information coming at us every single second. And so if it is not something that is incredibly important to our brain, it's like, yeah, yeah, that instinct, that connection, it's fine, whatever. So women with small dogs are terrible, whatever, swipe left, right? That's it. We make these absurd, and you've seen it in my book, these, um, the spurious correlations like mm-hmm. these absurd correlations, like women with your small, bo- small dogs, bad. It's not logical, but it's also not hurting us or we're not seeing the result of that hurt. You're not, you don't know that you just missed the love of your life because you swipe left on that, on that woman. You'll never know. Yeah. Right. You'll never know. And so that, that continues to deepen our bias and say, well, it's fine. Like I I've, I've been operating like this my whole life and I haven't, I've never been hurt by it. And so we create this fallacy that reinforces uh, some of the instincts that that we're unaware of. I mm-hmm. I wish it was a really easy switch, right? To say, oh well, just step back from it. And once you know, like you do, you just said, like I know that this is an absurd thing that's not real. But because it's not important, you're not going to spend time to to recreate a new pathway. Um, and our brain is like, well, we've got 400 billion other things to process. So let's just let's just move on from that. Yeah. So my, my biggest, I guess, takeaway from, from the research from this book is A, you have to be aware. Like you have to be aware of the things You have to understand because even as you just said, like you're aware and you understand it. That's two, that's two steps in. The third step is creating the time and space to actually realign, um, and say, this is worth my time to shift this bias. And what that would mean is you going out. And spending a day fighting every woman you could with a small dog sitting down and having a conversation. I feel like I like that. Which sounds that like my personal probably, hell. <laughs> right. And then it's probably not worth your time. And this is how, you know, conspiracy theories and things line up because we can find people that verify all of our, all of our expectations. Mm-hmm. Small dogs with, I mean, I can tell you right now, I know three women. As soon as you said that, I was like, Oh, I go the type. And immediately I'm going, wait a <laughs> second, wait a second, wait a second, this is going to be a problem, right? Yeah, because you just confirmed what that. I want to believe. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And our brain loves that because we're like, oh, cool, yeah. we're in the same tribe. And we get some social um dopamine from that. Like, oh, mm. I, I see you and I understand it. And listen, let me tell you, you're right. God, that feels good to you. It feels good to me. And now I've earned this little social slide with you. And like, uh, it's it's a really, really dangerous game. Um so again, the, the, how, do we, how do we escape it? I think uh, it's, it's a recalibration of our stress response at the very core to understand like, this is not a tiger. Um, the second piece is reframing a lot of these threats as, as challenges. Like I would challenge you to, to, to try and prove yourself wrong, to set up this as, as, a, as a steel person argument, right? Rather than a straw man argument, That you can easily go out and find 10 people that have small dogs that are terrible human beings. I know I can do that. Instantly, right? But like, take the opposite perspective. How can you find ten people, the next ten people that you talk to, and like find the very best qualities in them that also happen to have small dogs, right? Uh, and then the the final piece I think is actually realizing that we are our own wizards. We're not stuck with the brains that we have, especially in this world of, of epigenetics. The possibilities to shift not only like for our future but literally in our own individual body our individual dna um we can begin to make changes that show up in behaviors um and different pathways in our own brain and that is both remarkable and terrifying because it becomes such a responsibility for us right like you actually have more control than maybe you want um yeah so that's 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 the big takeaway i guess yeah. Yeah, you know,
0: there's one line in the book that caught my attention. And I couldn't help but wonder if this would be the most highlighted or most hated line in the entire book like <laughs> that would cause the most controversy. And that's what I wanted to yeah. talk to you about. It. Uh, because you say as genders go, males and females are not equal. And at the moment I read that, I thought, oh, my God, like how mm. many people are she pissed off by saying that?
1: Oh, a lot. Uh, yeah. We have
0: never been <laughs> as a collective whole. Our biology uniquely shaped us to excel in particular areas and require support. And others, to be clear, that doesn't mean there isn't individual variation. Talk to me about that because I think that that is a perfect example of something that can be wildly misinterpreted.
1: Yeah, I mean, let me give you the example of I, we'll go back to basketball. Shaq never he, Shaq doesn't have to be good at basketball. He needs to just stand there and catch a ball that's thrown really high and just place it above the rim. There are not women built like that. Okay, <laughs> like yeah. there's, there's no women that are built like that. We're we're physically. Um, if we just look physically, that's probably the easiest, most obvious difference. Women are built differently from men. They're not better, they're not worse, they're different. And so along with that comes different physiology. I, the stress response is a classic spot to look at this. So men, typically when you 're under stress, the, the typical reactions you have are fight and flight. Women, the typical reaction we have is freeze, freeze and appease, um, tend to befriend. So what we do is we smile. We try to, to resolve the conflict and get out peacefully. And, uh, and those are, those are massive differences between the, between the genders, um, that are just kind of brushed over frequently. Um, we're, we're not built the same at all. Our brains are not built the same. We've got different, uh, wiring in our brains where women's brains are more connected. The two hemispheres are more connected. Um, men's brains, uh, the frontal lobe and, and the, Emotional processing love in the back are are more connected uh so we actually can see the exact same thing and process it completely differently now again, I'll say there are of course spectrums right and and again it is really hard to separate out uh biological sex from gender right this this cultural overlay of well you you behave that way because you are a woman or because you identify as a woman i that's a really, really difficult thing to to tease apart because it would be a very evil, ethically questionable study to to take men and raise them as women or, or vice versa. Um, yeah, in a in a completely separate society that that is reversed. Maybe like the Barbie movie. I don't know if you saw that recently, but mm-hmm. it, yeah, I I had I had some actual um, some issues with it. Um, in part because while we've always valued the power that that men have the financial power the political power the leadership power that you know was sort of exemplified as as you know barbies are on mount rushmore and all of the things i i think we've ignored the power of the feminine um you know the the ability to connect the deep emotional processing the introspection that are um the vulnerabilities that are hallmarks of of female power um and again not that men can't have that not that women can't have the other, but if we're only cheerleading in one direction, it becomes a, it becomes a problem for society.
0: Well, let's talk about what you call the abundance paradox, because you say that <laughs> when you're trapped in a hedonistic cycle of looking for evergreener pastures, you're in a no-win situation known as the abundance paradox in the modern world where the possibility of a newer, better job, a home or mate, is just one click away. We're swiping ourselves right into unhappiness. Funny <laughs> <laughs> that's the, yeah. the line. Yeah, it has like, swipe, you know? swipe,
1: swipe. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. So it got me thinking about a, a couple of conversations I've had, like, Ryan Holiday here, and, you know, like, unless you've been on the moon at this point, everybody knows who Ryan Holiday is if you write <laughs> sure. nonfiction books. And, you know, I mean, he's kind of the gold standard for what any of us could accomplish as nonfiction authors. And, The thing that he said to me that really struck me was that he said, you know, on the aggregate, this is good because it drives a lot of achievement. And if nobody, you know, uh, like nobody, if everybody wanted to just stay senator, nobody would run for president. The problem is, he said, then Mm. we start to believe that our happiness is just on the other side of this thing. And so he said, you would think that I wake up every day and, you know, I have the dream job, which I do. Like I get to write books that I've wanted to write and, you know, I've gotten to do work that anybody would kill to do. And mm-hmm. the truth is that we don't do that because you always think it's the next thing. Like, it's going to be the home run or the, you know, like grand slam in a world series. And mm-hmm. and I'm sure that you can relate to this as a nonfiction author. Like, obviously, we all want our books to sell well. We want to reach a lot of people. And and at the same time, like, we also have to make our peace with the fact that, guess what? We're probably not going to be Ryan Holiday because we weren't mentored by Robert Greene.
1: That's right. That's right. And and so often, I think it's the haves over the wants, right? Yeah. Like. Um, and I, I, I need to credit the right person with this. I mean, I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, Harvard professor just wrote a book on how to happy. Um, but the, the idea being basically instead of chasing more haves, which is that hedonic treadmill of like, I need more. I need more. I need more. I've got to have this. I got to have the next bestseller. Um, you know, I got to live the life of Ryan Holiday. I've got to look like Julia Roberts, like all of those haves. Um, you can do that for a long time and you're going to stay chasing on that treadmill. Um, but if you're willing to decrease your wants, because it halves divided by wants, if you can work on decreasing your wants, uh, that is actually more apropos to getting towards real happiness. But it's not how our instincts are set up because our instincts are like, we live in a sparse, scarce world. You got to grab all the things that you can right now. And my God, if you're not chasing to be your very, very best at all times, um you're going to get outpaced and you're probably not going to get any mates and then you're going to die alone and, and you were a biological failure. Are <laughs> I mean, you like that is like a lot of weight that you're carrying around from the start. Um and I think just even the recognition that your brain is set up to believe that you are a biological failure unless unless you're on that treadmill and you're chasing i uh, is a is a Really, really important recognition, uh, so that you can begin to, to step back and say, wait a second. What does that mean? Um, if I achieve this? Because at the end of the day, you know, Alexander the Great, what was his name? Right? <laughs> I mean, if you're anything yeah. like me, you're like, uh, uh Alexander. I and mean, he he did some things in the great. At, at the end of the day, even the very best, the highest achievers, the, I've accomplished all the things you die. And that's part of the beauty of biology is you die and eventually nobody will remember your name. So if we can fear a little bit less in these moments, um, I think we actually get more back by by being kinder, being more present to the everyday. Um, and And yeah, listen, strive for those achievements, but those can't be the things that define you. Because I promise you, there is no achievement, there is no book, there is no... Um, award that you will win that will make you feel like you're enough like well, some of the the most oppressed people are uh olympians standing there with the gold medal i i promise you um because they're like well shit now what this mm-hmm. isn't how it's supposed to feel like it's supposed to feel like i'm i'm good enough now and that's simply not how we earn it yeah well you know Related
0: to that, you say the secret to well-being has never been the excess accumulation of resources, homes, race cars, sexual partners, but rather well-being comes with cooperative reciprocity. In other words, happiness can be found in a community of like-minded crows. And (laughs) the reason that struck me is I wonder how you pair that and how something like that mindset can coexist in a consumer-driven economy in which we have to consume for the economy to sustain itself. Like if everybody suddenly is like, do
2: we well? Okay. So this is, this is a a debate that I've had with
0: people. Yeah, I've I've had this. And that's why I wanted to bring it up with you because like when I read that, I'm like, okay, so how do those two things coexist? Because, you know, people have to buy our product. Like, for example, I need advertisers to advertise on my show and people to buy my courses in order to have a business. Uh, Sure. And, uh, you know, let me, let me question
1: that. Yeah. Let me question that right there. Do you need a business? For what purpose do you need a business?
0: Well, I mean, to put food, well, to have, to be able to pay my rent and (laughs) earn a living.
1: Right. So, so what if, what if you partnered with, and this sounds, listen, I can take this really far. You know, you know, the road I'm going down, right? Like, what if you partnered with the, the bread maker and you did a trade where like, you know, we, we have this economy that we've built up. And now, oh man, we could go on to discuss AI and all of the jobs. Basically like a a burning man esque world. I mean, I'm not suggesting that that's ideal either, but we, we have created, we've created an excess of time, believe it or not. Like, I know all of us are running around feeling like chickens with our heads cut off. Like, there's not enough time in the day. And oh my God, we are, we are so freaking productive. Like, look back 50 years, 50 years, and you will see this massive amount of, of free time, of leisure time. That we literally do not have and we're working twice as hard. We're, we're soaring in productivity. We don't have to work this hard. In fact, I would make the argument that we should not work this hard and that our lives would not only be better, our world would be better, our culture will be better, our kids would be better. We would be healthier if we scaled back that production and, um, and relied more on cooperative, cooperative cohorts. Um, and, and I, I'm not, I don't mean to push it all the way to a communist society or, or, you know, burning man, like we're all going to be hippies and dance around like the campfire all day. I, I don't think that's it either. But, um, but recognizing that these, these drivers in us actually aren't leading to a better society. And at some point it breaks. I think yeah. that is super, super important.
0: Well, I, I think that, like, it, it's funny because in The Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith said that self-interest is the engine of prosperity. And I think we've taken <laughs> that to the point of diminishing returns.
1: I I agree. I don't think he was a, he was around to see, you know, AI taking over a job. Like, you know, this yeah. is, this is well, a new world. Yeah.
0: It's funny, right? Cause like I get annoyed when AI doesn't work faster. It doesn't give me the response. And like I remember right. thinking back to, you know, a conversation I had with Sasha Hines and she was like, you know, people bitch about being like having a flight delayed. And she was like, can you imagine if Lewis yeah. and Clark could get from where they were at to where they needed to go yes. on Your a whole flight? Yeah. would be... died
1: of dysentery. You know? Yeah. Uh, like <laughs> as,
0: as anybody who plays Oregon Trail remembers
1: exactly exactly um yeah i mean we we have this abundance of of riches and it is up to us to really update our brains to recognize that so that we aren't just spoiled by it and and running ever faster ever harder and um and staying sad and lonely and and (laughs) and burning ourselves out
0: well i have two final questions uh I have a, a one year old nephew. He just turned one last week. And so I'm always curious about sort of learning what is going on in his world, uh, through the lens of social science. Like, what do we yeah. know about kids at his age and instinct? Because the things that I've seen in him have been, you know, at times they're inspiring, at times they scare the shit out of me and my family because he mm. seems to have no fear, doesn't seem to understand gravity, which we've all had to like <laughs> discover as we try to keep him from jumping off a of bed. Um, but. It's like he doesn't have a care or worry in the world and everything. What a, what a is gift. Intri- it, it's so beautiful because like the mundane becomes magical when you see it through That's, his eyes. Uh, so I wonder. Isn't that it? What is it, it's the most beautiful thing? Mm-hmm. Like all the things that I just look around my house, I'm like, this is so annoying. And he's just like so delighted by it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what Become is happening instinct wise? Yeah. What is going on in terms of instinct at that age? Like how does somebody like so how do his instincts develop?
1: Yeah. I mean, his instincts develop by, by playing. Um, no. and, and we lose that over time. We develop the fears because we're like, wow, this has actual consequences. It is really, it's a parent's job to keep a kid alive. That's it. That's it. All you're yeah. doing is keeping them alive, you know, from, from zero to 12, at least. Um, that's, that's the only job. That's the sole purpose. Um, and children play and they're, they're innately curious. This is one of my favorite things about our brain is that curiosity and fear. Cannot coexist because mm-hmm. for 200,000 plus years, nobody ever looked at a tiger charging them and was like, huh, I wonder how fast it's coming, right? And we didn't, we don't get curious in moments of fear, but kids don't have these, these built in fears, um, that are, that are confirmed for them yet. So they're testing things
2: yeah. like,
1: Oh, will this hurt? And those instincts, don't get me wrong. Those instincts are present, but they're willing to be curious about the instincts. Whereas as, as, as adults, We've kind of shut down. We're like, oh, I've learned that once. I I know that small dogs and uh, girls that own small dogs are terrible human <laughs> beings. I've learned that. Like, I don't need to be curious anymore. It's not worth my time. Yeah. Um. And for kids, all they've got is time and play. And and I, one of the the cures I think for overriding our instincts is to is to get curious again to be to be more childlike.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've noticed with him that. There are a couple of things. Like one is he'll take risks, but he's also learning how to be calculated. Like he's just learned how to stand mm-hmm. up and he's trying to walk. Yeah. And he knows if he <laughs> falls, it's going to hurt. So he's like, okay. He was like, yeah, I know yeah. how to sit down. Yeah. So he's very careful about how he falls. Like mm-hmm. he makes sure that he I falls feel- on his butt. Um, but the other thing is he just started talking and he started saying hi. And my sister took him to Target and he literally said a hi to every single person there.
4: Yeah. Isn't and that I was cool? Like, and he-
0: that is so amazing. I was like, man, I'm like, you really have no social fears. Like in your world, it's like everybody wants to talk to me. And of course, everybody wants to talk to you because you're adorable.
1: Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. But like, what a shame that 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 changes. You yeah, it, it really he is. And like, uh, here's here's my challenge to you and all of the listeners. Go to Target today and say hi to every single person. See what happens. It got me
0: thinking. I literally after my sister told me that I wrote down an idea for a book titled The Power of Hello. Um but just <laughs> simply saying that one thing you open, like that is one thing I learned from. I was like, wow, I'm like, you are like, he's super charismatic for a one year old. It's really yeah. amazing to watch. <laughs> um, but, uh, it like that just struck me so much. I was like, wow, I'm like, we're not like that. We don't say hi to anybody when we're walking yeah. down the street.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'd say the, uh, the technology has made that worse, right? Because yeah. we're, we're no longer bored. So we're no longer looking to engage with other people. And in fact, you know, the, the thing that our brains automatically go to is, well, this could be bad. You know, this could be bad. Well, what if it's not? What if it's good? What if you meet? Listen, I met my husband on an airplane because he boldly sat down beside me and asked me out to dinner, like on an wow. airplane. Uh, you never, you just never know. Um, so staying open and curious, I think is a gift that we should learn from kids. I think that, that that's a really great, great challenge. Yeah.
0: Well, I think that makes a beautiful place to finish our conversation. I have one final question for you, which is how yeah. we finish up all of our conversations at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I think um, their ability to be completely authentic with who they are. And I, I say that and I know that sounds like a little bit of a canned response, but I truly believe the hardest work that you will ever do is to become yourself because it is such an unpacking of. The instincts and the cultural programming, um, and all of the unlearning that we have to do to say, wait, 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 is that me? Um, I think, I think when you come across the people that have done the work to say, oh yeah, that's me, uh, they show up absolutely unmistakable.
0: Beautiful. Well, uh, this has been incredible. I feel like I could talk to you all day.
1: <laughs> I'm like, I'm really sad. And I'm I'm late for another podcast, and I'm disappointed now because I'm like, I want to keep talking with you. So yeah, yeah it's gonna oh, yeah.
0: delay. Well, Thank you. I. Can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, your book and everything else that you're up to?
1: I mean, the easiest place to go is just in my website, RebeccaHeist.com. Um, I'm on all the socials. You can feel free to reach out to me. It's Dr. Rebecca Heist, um, on Instagram and, and Facebook and all the, all the things. Um, yeah, please don't, don't be a stranger. Reach out. Say hi. Say hello. You never know what what will happen. (laughs) (laughs)